0: Good morning. There we go. Well, first thing I would like to do is, as a community, you guys, we all know the Wilkes. Larry just went through and passed all of his ordination exams, which, which is really significant. It's not a light exam, it's five written exams. Each of them take between two to three hours. And then you go before a committee. And there are, I don't know, six to eight on the committee. And then you go before Presbytery, which are men, a room full of men this size, and they can ask you anything they want about the Bible, theology. So it's a significant exam. And Larry has shown faithfulness and determination and wisdom and patience, which are huge character qualities. And uh, so it's really exciting. This moves them further down the road to move to England to help with an existing church there. So if you want to know more about that, I know you could talk to them. After the service, though, don't go over now. Um, And they would love to explain more. Uh, If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Hosea. If you do not, Blue and White Bibles, it's page 489, I think. Um, We're going to look at three chapters this morning. I'm not going to read them all. Just going to give some little. Uh, we're just going to skip some some stones through these chapters. Uh, otherwise, when we read prophecy like this, sometimes we can just get lost because this is for Israel and there's uh, it's for a time, and we can get lost in some of the complexities. But again, just a quick overview of the book of Hosea. Um, Hosea is called as a prophet, and God called him to uh, prophesy. Uh, coming judgment toward the nation of Israel and as an extra calling he was also called to marry a woman named Gomer and she would be adulterous and they would have children she would live with other men and it was an example an illustration of Israel and their rebellion against God Homer and, or Gomer oh, man I've said that every Sunday haven't I <laughs> Someone said it's like when you blend, like, famous couples together. I don't know what, you know, anyway, we'll move on. Can't think of a famous couple. Brad, Brad is that it? Okay. Yeah, that's in my notes, Brad Anyway, you know what I'm talking about. Hosea, Gomer, Hosea pursues her. God pursues his people. God pursues rebellious Israel. In her rebellion, God moves toward her. So we're going to look at three chapters. So this book, the narrative part of this book, Hosea and Gomer, that story takes up the first three chapters. When you get to chapter 4 through 14, those are taken up with uh, Hosea proclaiming God's coming judgment on this nation unless they repent and turn from their sin. So let me read just uh, the introductory verse in chapter 5. Of this book It begins, and we see who this judgment is coming, this message of judgment, who's this coming toward. Hear this, O priests. Pay attention, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king, for the judgment is for you. This coming judgment is for the leaders of this nation and for this nation because of their rebellion. Judgment from God in the Bible usually brings up some uneasiness to say it lightly. Uh, Even those here who trust in Jesus, when we read about God's judgment, we feel uneasy about it. And there are many people who see, read passages of of God's judgment, and it just turns them off to a God uh, that would have any kind of judgment or justice. I've never heard anyone complain about reading the Bible and saying that God is loving, and that's offensive to me. It's usually... That God is, there's wrath and judgment coming from that God. I have no interest in knowing who he is. Why does God's justice bring such anger when it is honorable to fight for justice in our culture? Why are people offended? And you might be sitting here saying, I'm offended when God proclaims judgment. Why is that offensive when in our culture in the last 30 or so years, it has become very popular to fight for justice. What is offensive about God doing the same thing? It's honorable in all in our culture to fight and protect the innocent, but somehow for God to do that in his grace it is offensive. And many people with this view would say God is unjust to judge. And so any wrath God shows, it just displays that he's cruel. For true, real love to exist, there has to be justice in that love. There has to be a dose of justice and even of wrath. Real love must include both affection for and defense against. You're protecting the person you love from something. Imagine you're in your house or you're in someone's house and you have, there are children in the home and you hear the front door break violently, and you hear intruders coming in, yelling, screaming, Um, what is your first reaction? Your reaction not only is fear, but your fear drives you to something. Your fear drives you to stop what is unjust. And that is because you love kids. You love people. You understand the destruction that can come. For those of us here in this room, this is just a story. This is the reality for a lot of people in this world. This is their story. It is a wonderful thing that the God of the Bible is a just God. Scott Sauls says, To accept that God is a lover but not a judge is a luxury that only the privileged and protected can enjoy. When you live in a place that is not safe, And protected. When you live in a place where innocence is taken, abuse is rampant, violence is part of everyday life, you take peace in a God who is just. God talks about wrath and judgment because he desires that we never have to taste it. God is not a God who wants to give judgment to squelch someone. Well, we see in this chapter, God is giving a coming judgment toward Israel because he wants them to see and know redemption. So God is not cruel because he's offering redemption this whole time to this nation of Israel. And they continually do not listen. And they run from this. Although Israel had forgotten God, God had not forgotten her. We see that God remembers his people. Even in his coming judgment, he remembers his people. He pursues his people. Our uneasiness about God being just is really that he confronts our desire of autonomy. And I think this is what I just mentioned. When you and I fight for justice, for freeing the innocent and abused, um, we feel autonomous in that. What you have here in this story is God's bringing judgment against Israel. Israel fighting against that because they want to be autonomous. They don't want to be accountable to anybody. And this resonates with you and I because this is one of our battles. We want to be autonomous. And, and reading that God judges and he's just and he is a perfect law and he created us, automatically we are not autonomous. We are accountable to this and to a God who is gracious even in his judgment and justice. God confronts our desire for autonomy. If there is a God, then we're not alone. And then the God of the Bible interacts with humanity, and we are known by him. So not only are we not alone, we're not autonomous. The God of the Bible is a relational God. That means he knows us. Desire to be known, but also there's a fear of being known. I think the nation of Israel wrestled with this. In one sense, they wanted to be known by God, but they wanted to be known by God on their own terms. And part of the term was, we want to be autonomous. We we don't want any accountability over Or against us. When we live autonomously, uh, we have a protected space that we believe that we are in control of. I don't have to believe God or love uh, or his love uh, to work through things. I can just work through things as an individual and I do not have to address why I'm here what, what values me as a person? Am I made in anyone's image? You don't have to address any of those things. And that may, may seem like there's some peace in that. But to understand the peace in that only exists in your autonomous world. Your peace in that autonomy does not exist with the God who made you. The choice to not be known and to live under the facade of autonomy is easier but this life brings no peace. Israel's wrong and sin has been addressed and their reaction to seek peer their reaction is to seek peer help seek a, seek a neighboring nations help. This is their answer. Things are spiraling downhill. Hosea continually tells them turn and repent of your sin. These are the things you need to repent of. And their action is, you know what? I think Assyria is going to help us. I think another nation, if we call them, they're going to come and help us because they're similar to us. And they sought help from Assyria. Chapter 5, verse 13, Ephraim went to Syria. Seeking God may bring a level of discomfort, which is why so many people say, I've been seeking God, but I can't ever find him. This, I imagine, is some of Israel's struggle. They say, we are seeking God, but he's not meeting us. He's not here. We don't find him. They have found him. They just don't want to listen to him because he's uncomfortable for them. And this may be your story, that you want God to fill certain expectations of your life, and you say, I'm going to seek God, and I seek him, and I can't ever find him. Because you need to be open as, a, as someone made in God's image, to be confronted by who God is. And your expectations need to be addressed. We realize God is God and you are not. So what does that look like when God confronts your expectations of who he is? You may expect God, a God who agrees with all of your choices. Who will take away all of your pain in an instant. And that's your expectation. When that expectation is not met, you get frustrated and say, well, God must not exist because he didn't meet my expectations. There's an academic, uh, Brene Brown. Many of you have probably read her uh, books or listened to some of her uh, lectures. There's a short little video that is out on her coming, uh, returning to the church and returning to faith. And in this video, it's four minutes long. Um, she says she thought returning to the church and returning to faith would be like an epidural, that she would enter the doors and all the pain and heaviness and brokenness she feels would just magically disappear. And she went in and she realized there's no epidural. But what she realized, and she says, this is even more significant. She says, church and faith is like a midwife where they're going to really address, yes, something's going on here, and I'm here with you, and you need to push, and it's going to hurt. And she says, that is more valuable than what she expected to have an epidural and numbness because she's realizing what a community of faith actually looks like. Our expectations of God and walking with him need to be addressed. And this is what God is addressing through Hosea to the nation of Israel. God has a defined, unchangeable character. God exists with or without our own existence. God's laws reveal who he is. And even Israel, these people that are continually in rebellion, they had a history of God meeting them and caring for, for them, and carrying them, and leading them, and providing for them. This was their history. But they got stuck in this cycle of operating in a whole different economy, an economy of religion. And their calling was to repent. Why is it so hard for you to accept God as who he is? Why is it so hard for you and I to accept God as a just judge? Why is it so hard when we feel this joy and passion and desire to fight for justice here that somehow we're offended that God fights for cosmic justice? Why is that so offensive? If God fights for Cosmic justice, he does it through Jesus. And he brings peace through Jesus. Verse 4 says, uh, chapter 5, verse 4 their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. For the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. We begin to see their issue. Their issue is their deeds do not permit them to, to see the Lord. And there's a spirit of rebellion that is in them. Both of these things need to be dealt with. But it's much easier just to deal with the outward acts. These evil deeds of selfishness or sin and leave the heart and desire alone. And this is Israel's struggle because this is all they want to deal with. All they want to deal with is their external sin and they want to stop it And they want to get back to their work and their economy of religion. And they want everything to go back to normal. They don't want to deal with the sin that is within them. And this is the bigger problem. The problem is not improve your sacrifices. The problem is a deeper problem. The problem is that they know not the Lord. That they're still holding on to their expectations of who they want God to be. And they are wearing themselves out in religious activities, saying, "God must meet us." We celebrated a baptism in the first service, and this baptism is a sacrament, and it is really is meaningless if there's no redemption. Baptism is meaningless unless there jesus meets someone and there's a heart change and someone knows under someone understands repentance and forgiveness of sins and has active faith in jesus only then can they look back at their baptism and say i understand how god was with me through the maze of my life then your baptism means something if you don't have that it is just a religious activity Something to take time. We laugh at a cute little baby. We see some water. What we desire in a baptism is that this child will grow and know the Lord. That's what we desire. That they grow and they will know faith. As they're involved in our community of faith. And not just be caught up with religious activities. Israel's a nation working hard but working hard at all the wrong things. They're investing their life in things, but they're investing their life in things that God tells them that is not going to do anything, that is not going to help you. Your sacrifice is not going to help you. What you need, God says, is to know me. He continually reminds them. But they go back to this economy of exchange with God because it's much easier. Let's get exhausted giving sacrifices. Let's wear ourselves out trying to do things for God. But God says, no, I want you to know me, which is actually much harder. Because when we as a people know God, what happens is our expectations of God are confronted. The root of our sin is revealed. We realize our sin is not just outward deeds, but our sin comes from desire in our heart. There's a sin that's underneath the sin, and that's what God wants to address. And when we know God, he is gentle, and he's gracious, but he's also very just, and he says, this is what you need to deal with, and he walks with you, just like Hosea pursued Gomer. And the call is to return and repent. This is God's simple call to the nation of Israel. Chapter 5 at the end, verse 15, through the first three verses of chapter 6 say, verse it's God talking, I will return again to my place, and until then their guilt, excuse me, until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face, and in their distress, earnestly seek me. He says, I want you to seek me. And then it's Hosea talking, come let us return to the Lord for he has torn us. That he may heal us. He has struck us down that he may bind us up. Do you see that? The purpose of this judgment and these people seeing what a just God does is that they would turn and repent and they would know the God who made them. Chapter 2, after two days, or verse 2, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. And his going out is sure as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. God brings judgment so he can heal them. Because they are stiff-necked people. And they, have, they embody the same characteristics that you and I embody as being stiff-necked people who enjoy autonomy and don't like to be told what to do. And God calls them to repent. The intent of God displaying his judgment is so the relationship would be restored. All along in this book, God says, Turn and repent, I am here. This is his message over and over Turn and repent, I am here. This is what you're doing. Turn and repent, I am here. The turn comes when sin is acknowledged and mercy received. And God has put back in his place the one that they seek. And then Israel returns to the Lord. And Israel is not asked to work harder, but to return. This is really significant. We create these cycles in our life. You and I sin, and we realize there's a pattern of sin that's beginning. And we create some kind of out for us. And it doesn't work. Well, we think it's going to work next time. It's going to work next time. It's going to work next time. And it never does. And the question should be in our mind, is it working for you? Is it working for you? Is Jesus meeting you in that? Is God's Holy Spirit giving you the power to overcome that sin? But the Israelites enjoy that economy and exchange with God so much, they don't want to leave it. They don't want to leave it. Because look, Someone sacrificing so many things is seen by other people and appreciated. Someone dealing with their heart and their motivation, uh, you're getting at the core of who you are as a person. That is hard. This is much easier. God does not say, sacrifice more and then that's going to please me. He says, no, turn and repent of your sin. Meet me over here. And then the problem is made clear in verse 14. They do not cry to me from the heart. Listen, they do not not cry to me from their heart, dealing with who they are as a person. But they wail upon their beds for grain and wine. They gash themselves They rebel against me. Although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. Do you see, even in their repentance, They're working for it. They're not seeing God is meeting them. They wail upon their beds. Even their work of repentance is a visible, anguish, religious work. You you and I can wail in our beds horrifically. It doesn't say anything inside of us is being dealt with. It just means we can be really loud and yell and scream. But God says, I want to meet you. I want to meet you in your repentance when you acknowledge your sin. And this is what he's communicating to Israel. Israel, in their repentance, they don't desire any change. Israel comes to repentance the same way they try to come to God. Work hard in sacrifice. Work hard in repentance. True repentance is a deep acceptance that internal change is needed. Israel wanted their sacrifices and offerings and had no interest in faith, love, and knowledge of God. Israel felt more comfortable leaving God and battling over her own identity and significance as a nation because that was comfortable. They had no interest in true redemption, which is really... God's purpose of judgment in this book, that they would turn, they would see the weightiness of their sin. In chapter 7, Hosea gives four um, pictures of what has happened to the nation of Israel. Verse 4, so chapter 7 verse 4, they are all adulterers and they are like a heated oven. Whose baker ceases to turn the fire. An oven, what does an oven do? Well, it heats something up so it can be cooked so you and I can enjoy it. Uh, This oven is uneven. It looks like an oven. It's warm like an oven, but it doesn't accomplish what it's supposed to do. Internally, it's broken. Chapter 7, verse 8 A cake not turned, a cake not stirred. It looks like a cake. That's how you make a cake. But it's not stirred enough to actually be a mixed cake. Verse 11, a senseless dove, a dove with no wisdom, a treacherous bow, a a bow that is self-inflicting. So what God is saying to the nation of Israel is, uh, you appear like you are okay. But once you look a little further, God says, you are none of these things. And that correction or redemption is not to work harder. The redemption is to know that God is pursuing them. All of these describe the oven, the cake, the dove, and the bow, describe how sin affected Israel. What were once great and useful things are now useless. What God is desiring of the nation of Israel is repentance of their sin. That they would enjoy what it means to know God and be known by God. And they'd be willing to have their heart addressed. They'd be willing to repent of their sin and to enjoy what true peace really means. In Psalm 51, David writes about what confession of sin really looks like. What is a true confession of sin? It's not wailing in bed. Or in our context, it's not saying sorry a whole bunch of times and then buying a present. Repentance is a hard acknowledgement that you and I have done something wrong, and we own it. And in that, we know also, if you've confessed Christ, that you are a child of God, and there is strength and freedom to be able to acknowledge and repent of that sin. David says, Psalm 51, 16 and 17, for you will not delight in sacrifices, or I would give it to you. You will not be pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken heart, or a broken spirit, and a broken and contrite heart. This is what Hosea is addressing to Israel. These religious activities will not help you. God says, I want to know your heart. And as God gets to know your heart, that means you're confronted with a just and holy and merciful God. And as your sin is revealed, you are drawn to Him in repentance. And we have seen how hard it is for a people loved by God to walk with Him, the nation of Israel. But we walk the same road. In knowing God, our autonomy is confronted, our values are questioned and laid on the table. Our control is stripped. And you will take God's promises at his word. Or you will continue to make your religious activities the substance of your faith. God is calling the nation of Israel so that the substance of their faith faith would be knowing God. The substance of their faith would not be outward religious activities. God calls you and I to the same thing. What are the religious activities that we feel very comfortable in that give us some level of peace or significance? And we really ignore this part of our life, the sin underneath the sin, the unrest you feel when uh, you realize you've done something wrong. Uh, And you and I are called to live over here in the joy of repentance. That's what we get to celebrate this morning when we come to the Lord's table the perfect and completed work of Jesus. So no matter what you have done, no matter what sin you've committed this week or in your life, Jesus says, come. There's grace and mercy at this table. Let me pray as we prepare ourselves to come and receive of this meal. Lord God, you are just and righteous and your judgment is true and swift and we acknowledge our failure to understand it we acknowledge our own self-centeredness we pray that you would make us uh, people of justice and we would understand that our sense of justice comes because we are made in your image Lord, we pray that your spirit would give us uh, hearts of repentance, broken spirit and a contrite heart, that you would increase our faith as we come and receive of this meal of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in his name we pray, amen.